0: Before we start this episode, a gentle reminder, if you haven't donated to the ongoing relief efforts in Turkey and Syria, now is a good time to do so. If you have questions about where to donate, shoot an email to info amija.org.
1: Can sit here and throw out words like marginalized community, oppression, Islamophobia, dehumanization. Sure, that's one thing. Tweet the hell out of it. Fine. It is so different. Would you or that person living those experiences? And so the disconnect that I feel like I'm consistently seeing and finding myself in terms of going back to reality and and having conversations with people who perhaps are not understanding the weight um, of those words, but then engaging and being with people who live the weight in those words every single day is infuriating. I mean, how can you not be infuriated? How can you not be mad?
0: This is Reorient. A podcast about people in media who trace their roots back to the region that stretches across from North Africa all the way over to Southwest Asia.
2: This show is a part of AMIJA, the Arab and Middle Eastern Journalists Association.
0: I am Najiba Amini. And I'm Noor Wazwaz. And on this episode, we are talking with Roweda Abdul Aziz.
1: I am a national investigative reporter and I cover. Uh, Islamophobia, the intersection of gender, politics, and culture with Muslim life. In reality, that means so much more.
0: We're going to go back in time to the year 1998. That's when the trailer for the movie The Siege came out.
1: I'm sure everyone here knows the traditional model of the terrorist network. One cell controls all others. Cut off the head, the body will wither. Unfortunately, the old wisdom no longer applies. Cut off one head, another rises up in its
2: place. The movie was full of all the tropes. Think terrorist attacks waged by radicalized religious extremist sleeper cells in the US. When it came out, it was met with heavy outrage from Muslim and Arab communities across the country.
0: Still, the movie is particularly memorable because of the fear it stoked around what the U.S. government could potentially do, round up Muslims and members of the community in the name of national security. And of course, there was already precedent for this when the U.S. rounded up Japanese Americans back in the 1940s. Mind you, this movie came out in 1998. And as one of the top YouTube comments reads, quote, This movie predicted the next 20 years.
2: It's wrong! What if what they really want is for us to herd children in the stadiums like we're doing? And put soldiers on the street and have Americans looking over their shoulders? Bend the law, shred the Constitution just a little bit. We do that, and everything that we have bled and fought and died for is over.
0: I remember being hella young when I watched that movie at my uncle's house. And I'll never forget how it spooked him. It was one of the first things I thought of when this news broke almost 20 years later.
1: President Trump's executive order on immigration has dominated the news cycle. The president has ordered all travelers from Iran, Iraq, Libya, Somalia, Sudan, Syria, and Yemen to be denied entry to the United States. White House today
2: said other States. countries could be added if necessary. When he necessary. first announced it, he said Muslim ban. He called me up. He said, "Put it's a." Not a Muslim ban, but we we're
0: totally prepared. It's working out very nicely. You see it at the airport. You see it all over. It's working out very nicely, and we're gonna.
1: I remember being in my newsroom watching Trump sign the proclamation for the travel ban, being in awe of just like shocked but not surprised, and then turning around and seeing other people watching with me and having this look of horror on their face. And I think in that moment I realized that okay, I think people are starting to pay attention because, right, we saw the language at the time of, oh, he's just saying these things to rile up his base. He's, not, he's never going to implement any of these policies. And when that step was taken, I would say that was probably perhaps one of the moments in which people thought, hmm, maybe we should have given this more thought, or maybe we should be more critical about how we write about this. This obviously wasn't the
0: first time that U.S. federal policy directly targeted the broader Swana community. But it came more than a decade after the beginning of the, quote, war on terror, right after the September 11th attacks. And it seemed like there was this brief while where there was relative calm, at least generally speaking.
2: That was until a certain somebody slowly descended down an escalator. Ladies and gentlemen, I am officially running
0: for President of the United States, and we are going
2: to make our country great again. And gave speeches like this.
0: Donald J. Trump is calling for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States until our country's representatives can figure out what the hell is going on.
2: We have no choice. We have no choice. And it was in this climate when Ruaida fell into her beat.
1: I mean, there we, I, and I use the royal we here, we always knew, we have always advocated that we need to be covering our communities better. I mean, our communities have always been overlooked, again, unless there was a terrorist attack somewhere. So I've always been trying to make sure that our communities were included in even the most banal of stories. We shouldn't have to wait for someone to come out and say something particularly egregious and implement policies uh, like Trump A. B, it's not like those that language in those policies haven't existed you know, pre-Trump, they absolutely have. And so I think at the time, There was an awakening, perhaps from managers and people on top and news outlets everywhere who thought to themselves, here's a prominent person saying something particularly egregious. Let's let's write about it. And then they saw a particular reaction. I think some of it was genuine and I think some of it forced their hand. I also knew that this was going to just be the beginning. Just the beginning.
0: Well, the Muslim population of the West
2: is rising very quickly and that has implications for social cohesion or national security. It's being called the biggest spike in anti-Islamic incidents since 9-11. Well, the triple murder of three Muslims last night in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. A 17-year-old Muslim
0: girl was killed in what police are saying is a possible hate crime while she walked home from a mosque in
2: Virginia. Muslim groups are saying that they are now the targets of increasing intimidation and threats. They're saying that it's even changing the way some people go out, the way they dress, even the way they pray. Ruwaida reported on a lot of these kinds of stories. But just because she might have been seen as a visible Muslim woman, well,
1: that didn't always mean her sources would line up to talk to her. There was a lot of hand-holding. I mean, hand-holding in the sense that, look, our communities don't have media literacy. Uh, and for good reason, because when they first started out engaging with media, it them in the butt uh we would engage you know particularly when it comes to stories and oftentimes and unfortunately and this is no fault to our community stories that had to do with national security had to do with terrorism had to do with foreign policy and then we all know you have an hour-long interview with a reporter and that gets uh trimmed down to a single quote or a 30 second sound by a national tv And they see the result of that. And then they say never again. And so there was a huge amount of time that I had to dedicate before I was getting stories to teaching members of our community, like, look, this is what off the record means. This is what on the record means. This is who I am. Uh, If you want to go look at my work, go ahead. You want to talk to other people that I've interviewed in the past, like, go for it. Um, And so as much as there perhaps there was the initial trust, Because I was from the community, at the end of the day, I was still a reporter. I was still working at a national news outlet. And so there were still a lot of questions that I had to field.
0: But Islamophobia wasn't the only topic Rueda had been covering. She too was writing story after story about immigration. It's why when Trump's travel ban came out, Rueda was unintentionally at the right place at the right time, at least for any early career journalist looking to make a name for themselves. If even for a brief moment, It's all that people were talking about. But the added spotlight also exposed how certain kinds of stories would so often get covered. It's something Roeda especially noticed around how the global refugee crisis was being reported on.
1: We saw a lot of stories when they were covering refugees, right, and we still see this today, of you know, putting refugees in a binary. They're leaving this awful, terrible place, run by savages, incited by war, coming from lands that is just riddled with conflict the entire time. They never know how to make peace. The women are oppressed and they're coming to this beautiful land that's going to grant them all these opportunities, right? A, there was no conversation about the the process that was happening in terms of just like how tumultuous it was and how we were failing them. We saw a lot of the exploitation of these people's trauma with absolutely no context and no understanding, or right? No context of the role that we had in perhaps destroying some of these countries, right? Not acknowledging that, you know, Yemenis who were banned on the travel ban were also being actively bombed by our bombs.
0: Rueda says there's this sort of heroic pat on the back for being able to get refugees to the U.S. It's kind of like this sort of, hey, we did it. But the dehumanization still continues, even when they make it here.
1: The demonization of refugees by politicians, the conversations of the danger that they, you know, that they were going to pose uh, to our community and how that impacted the very homes that they were living and how their neighbors treated them how their caseworker treated them how some of them had flat out told me i would rather go back to x war country than being here right and some people were immensely grateful and, and wanted to be here and did end up succeeding i mean it's the grays that or the real stories thrived, but we didn't see those grades because we were so stuck on painting this poor person and like good savior complex and the story just ended there. It just led to, it led to a false story.
2: Do you feel a lot of pressure to make sure that all of this context is in every single story, especially because you're maybe one of the only Muslims at your organization?
1: Yes, I would lose sleep over it. I mean, reporters already have an issue of overwriting, right? And so I'm submitting drafts that are insanely long that are always being cut in half. And I get it, right? Not everyone wants to read an academic paper. You're writing a news article, so it's a very specific audience. But I always found a way, and, and you know, I advocated, and you know, I'm grateful that you know, I'm, you know, as much as I can that that was always included. But that was not always included in, in, in other places.
0: But Rueda says this responsibility has taken an emotional toll on her.
1: Covering members, you know, of of your own community, of your largest communities, people that you can relate to, was hard as hell, right? When I'm talking to someone and she reminded me of my aunt, when I'm looking at a kid and reminded me of my cousin and my sibling, when you're speaking the same language, when you, it's not very hard to be talking to someone from your community and you uh, talk for a couple of minutes and then you realize you were once neighbors or like you're related through marriage somehow in some way. And so when that person is going through a particular hardship, and that keeps me up at night, right? Uh, whether we're talking about refugees or whether I'm talking about uh, an, an issue of a hate crime or whether we're talking about uh, a massacre and a masjid, whether we're talking about Quebec or Christchurch, et cetera. And so all of that uh, weighs really heavily on me because then you know I want to do justice to their story. And I feel that personal responsibility because I think to myself, well, they've been wronged for so long and they perhaps feel like this is their chance to get it right. And if I screw that up, I, this person who is allegedly closer to them, you know, in one shape, form, or another, then what do, what do they have left to hold on to? And I don't know if that's fair to, to, to hold that type of responsibility, but I, I do, and I do it every single time I write one of these stories. How heavy are your shoulders? too heavy sometimes, uh, heavy enough where, you know, I've yeah, I had to seek out professional help um, and, and have been in therapy uh, because of those conversations. Um, the way my family, and my friends have seen it impact me perhaps in, in, in my personal life. Um, always looking for ways to cope and to do better. I mean, I don't think we talk enough about the, the trauma, you know, the secondhand trauma that we face. I mean, we, we talk it in the sense of perhaps the correspondent that goes to a conflict area and comes back. Uh, perhaps we don't talk about it as enough as someone, you know, a person of color, a woman of color, a Muslim, a non position, whoever, right? Covering their own communities or covering an issue that is rife with trauma and difficulty and challenges and uh, not checking up as to how they're going to sleep at night. Because at the end of the day, we're told first and foremost, don't become the story, right? It's not about you. It's it's about someone else. And so you get up and you do it all over again the next day.
0: When did you recognize that perhaps a common theme in a lot of your reporting is trauma?
1: I believe it was when I was interviewing Shaymet, who was a Yemeni mom who was trying to come to the U.S. with her infant son who, who needed surgery. And I remember the outrage at the time. There were so many people who were covering her story. A woman from Yemen who wants to fly to California to visit her dying child is being denied entry to the U.S. because of a controversial travel entry ban. She is the mother two of year a two-year-old boy Hassan,
0: dying US of a rare Hassan. brain disease in a California well, hospital. in less than
1: two hours, a Yemeni mother will land in the Bay Area to say goodbye to her dying son. No one had the opportunity to talk to her directly. So it was her husband who was mostly giving the interviews. Part of part of the reason was because, you know, her husband spoke English. She didn't speak English. And it was recently that we found out that her son had died uh, after finally being granted the visa and wasn't in the U.S. for so long. You know, we were sitting in a room together. It was me, her and her husband. And the... The pretense was that she wasn't going to speak, that she was just going to be there and the husband was going to do the interview because she did not want to, to, to speak to reporters. And I respected that and I said, okay, then I had agreed with it. And I was able to have a conversation with her. And so I was just making small talk with her. I was speaking with her in Arabic. And we were the only two women in the room at the time. And so there was her husband and, and the lawyers. And so her and I were just on the side. And so I started making small talk with her and then telling her about myself and telling her about my family and telling her about my experiences in Arabic. And, and she listened and, and she soon started to engage in Arabic. And I was only going to to speak to the husband. And she, paused, you know, halfway through the conversation, she she stopped her husband and said that she wanted to speak for herself. Uh, because some, she would whisper to him up to this point and she would make points that perhaps she wanted to, to mention. And so, you know, her husband took a back seat and, and she dominated the rest of the conversation, which I don't even know if I could call a conversation because, you know, she mostly spoke and I mostly listened partly because she was so incredibly eloquent and partly because I my heart was shattering into, into a million pieces and I wanted to compose myself. started speaking about her son in such beautiful eloquence I mean Arabic is such a beautiful language and so when she was uh, speaking of him in and metaphors and prose and just reflecting on his memory in that moment I realized not just the trauma that she had been in but you know at that point I hadn't had been in a more difficult situation it was perhaps one of Today it was one of the most difficult interviews of my life but at the time it was the most difficult interview and it hit me then that this is the majority of my job and you know it's it was an honor to to speak to Shayma that she, she that she allowed me to to speak with her but that train ride back was hard Holding that space, and, and I remember like clutching my notebook and, and, and holding everything that she told me. Uh, I needed more time than usual to process because it was so heavy uh, that interview, it weighed so heavy uh, on my heart. But somewhere out of the rage, there's hope. There's always hope.
2: And one consistent source of hope for Ruwaida actually comes from a failed project, not one she was involved in, but one she covered. The passionate and sometimes painful exercise known as the Ground Zero Mosque Debate, if you haven't been keeping up, it centers on plans to build a $100 million Islamic community center with a mosque in it, two blocks from the site of the world- Ruwaida recalls the time she interviewed one of the project's leaders, Imam Faisal Abd Rauf.
1: You know, I remember interviewing it was Imam Abdul Rauf uh, when I had uh, done the story talking about um, the the quote unquote "Ground Zero Mosque" and and we were doing a reflection piece about. You know his feelings. I remember looking at the drawings and and, and holding the blueprint, right, and seeing the kitchen and the bazaar and the swimming classes and the art classes and and the training for all. Of, you know, it was so much more than just a place of worship, right? And his vision for this to be like this iconic center in New York City. How excited and hopeful they all were, and how that was all decimated, just absolutely destroyed by right-wing campaigners, how it took a grieving city, these people took a grieving city and made it into not just a national debate, an international debate. And so I remember talking to him and I asked him if he was hopeful that this could ever happen again, right? Like, did we learn as a country? Do you think you would be able, if not you in your lifetime, you know, someone else in our lifetime to, to, to build something like this? And he said, I'm, I am hopeful and there always has to be hope. He said, if you don't have hope, that's when they've won and you've lost. And I sat with that feeling, you know, partially guilty as someone perhaps is not as optimistic because of the field that I'm in and him having gone through the death threats, having been placed in a safe house at one point, having, you know, having been vilified by the issue that had made it all the way up to the White House and across uh, the entire globe. And he was so hopeful and so, I think to myself as someone who is processing all of these stories in, in a nutshell, right? And there are plenty of positive, you know, I would love to talk about some of the positive stories eventually, but I think when I'm at rock bottom and I'm facing, you know, the, the worst of the worst and the hardest of the hardest of moments and thinking about our future as a country in regards to systematic issues of xenophobia, Islamophobia, racism, white supremacy, et cetera. I think of the AMMs words and I, Tell myself that, you know, if someone like that and all of the other people I've interviewed are able to hold on to a semblance of hope, uh, then I kind of need to as well.
2: Keeping the hope is hard by itself. There's the added vitriol that slides into Ryuda's DMs or her emails after a story is published. But... Every now and then, there comes that one email.
1: I think of this random anonymous email that I had gotten from a woman who said that she had so much hate for Muslim women. And it was after reading my story about the experiences of Muslim women swimming in U.S. beaches. And that caused her just to think twice, perhaps, and to question her her judgments. When I think about her, right, and what her thought process was when when she read my story. So all of those, you know, experiences take up so much more space in my heart, you know, and give me the perseverance to say, so far, you know, it's worth it. So far, I am able to do this. So far, I want to do this. I have the drive to do this. And I'm going to continue to do this until I run out of reasons.
0: Wait, I want to hear more about the swimming story.
1: That was one of my favorite stories, hands down. I think that year I'd done a series uh, about the experiences of Muslim women. And the one swimming, you know, stood out to me for so many reasons. I mean, one, you had, you know, the backdrop of just like, Islamophobia and hatred targeting visible, you know, Muslim women and how Muslim women process are, are on the forefront of hate differently than how, like, men are subjected to, to anti-Muslim hate, right? They, you can't tell that they're Muslim, they're racially ambiguous, the policies impact them differently, et cetera. So there's that. Uh, there was also, I think this was summer of, like, the rise of, like modest fashion wear so like the maxi dresses and the maxi skirts uh, were really in and we saw this styles everywhere things that like you know muslim women particularly hijabi women had been wearing for a while and so there was the intersection of hate and fashion and then also the intersection of repetition of history and how here in the u.s we did the same to the black community right in terms of policing them and and segregation at pools and beaches and and places of 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 swimming right so i got to touch upon like all three of these things you know like i married all of that together um and and went about and and did this story and because i think it was one of those moments right you know as a hijabi for me you know i i remember talking to my friends or like my sisters and we go swimming and we're in our bikinis and there's a little bit of an irony there, right? Like people are wearing less and you're wearing more, but we all just want to enjoy this body of water. Just the, you know, the toll that it had taken on us, you know, growing up and how it's such a complicated relationship that we had with swimming in the U.S. and how common that was with other young Muslim women. And and that's that's when that light bulb went off. And I said, hey, this is so common for people in my community, but perhaps people outside of my community wouldn't think twice about this.
2: What's your, do you have a provocation? What, like someone listening to this, what do you, what do you want, want to challenge them with?
1: I would say for members of our community, right? I, you know, I hope and want to see, I think, more of a qualitative relationship with media, right? I think we have become so bruised that we perhaps, the bar is so low, That perhaps you know we're not as engaging as we could it's the the good muslim bad muslim dichotomy in our stories and i think about that when i think about the stories that i've written i wrote a story about the challenges muslim survivors of domestic violence and their experiences of what they've gone through and the story that i had written about anti-blackness and arab and muslim communities as well and so you know i've gotten the criticism you know uh, of people in our community being like hey we have enough dirty laundry, right? Like, there's no. Don't arm the people, you know, the people uh, on the right or whoever, um, to use your material to propagate more hate towards us. And this is something that I think about all the time, right? And, and does that conversation usually start with sister? Yeah, 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 sister. Please, please, sister. It does, and that's tough because you know it's a it's a tough pill to swallow because. As much as I am a member of the community, like I'm a, I'm a journalist first, right? And so there, I am here to write a good story. And I firmly believe when a story is done well and is written, is well reported, well cited, it's going to be just and it's going to be truthful. Now, how you define just and truthful is going to lead as to how you're going to perceive my story. Right. If you are going to diminish and say there are no, you know, domestic violence doesn't plague our communities. Right. Then you're not going to see that story as just as you're going to say there's no racism. Right. In, in our communities, et cetera. Right. And so I wholeheartedly believe that sticking to the principles of journalism is going to align with the principles, whether it's of the faith, the principles and values I have as an Arab, et cetera. Um, and some people are, are going to see differently. But that's not my job. And so I'm one person, you know, there are billions of Muslims in, in the world. Um, I'm not going to cover all of our stories. It's impossible. Um, I don't want to. I am <laughs> Nor not a representation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm not that representative. <laughs> right, right. And right. I, I'm not a th- I'm not your imam. I'm not your theologian.
0: Also, who even who even wants to be? Exactly. Like, that's such
1: a, it oof. sounds terrible. Yeah. Who's 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 got the, the time energy. for that? Anyways? No, yeah. no. But at the same time, it is harder to, to stand up and, and to, to, to do the right thing, especially when you're the only one. I think there's this assumption that's partly true that, you know, competition it means everyone has to fend for themselves. But more often than not, we're going through the same thing. And so I would hope there would be more solidarity uh, with media journalists and non-media journalists, but at least to help us find a way to build sustainable changes. In our collective newsroom and by extension in the industry so that we can continue to open doors for others i don't want to be the only arabic speaking person in my newsroom right i don't i want to have other people in my newsroom so that means helping in the mentorship helping in the hiring helping people get there because being tokenized is not the answer and i think oftentimes and not it's too easy to feel like the tokenization means you're special and they love you and you're going to like get all of these accomplishments. That's not true. And so the, the, there is more power in numbers. And so I, I challenge a media journalist to, to resist that status.
2: You can follow Ruaida Abdelaziz on Twitter. Her handle is at Ruaida underscore Abdul. This episode was produced by me, Najib Amini, Catherine Nuhan, and Suzanne Gaber.
0: If you like what you hear, would like to help out with this show, or have suggestions of who should be interviewed, send an email to podcast at org. Again, the email is podcast at amija.org. But in the meantime, please help spread the word by sharing this episode or past episodes with your friends, family, significant others, or others who are significant. Good things should be shared. And believe it or not, there are many more episodes on the way, so stay tuned. But for now, thank you for listening.